Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined as always by Nizar Hassan. How's it going, Nizar? Not bad. In another lockdown. <laughs> That's right. We're we're on day four of the. I guess it was supposed to be a super lockdown at first, but we're we're sort sort of back to the normal lockdown after the spike in cases uh, last week. Today, we have a very special guest on the program, uh, Paul Abinasser, who is a member of the board of the Association of Lebanese Industrialists. Um, he is also the CEO of Polytextile, a local company that manufactures textiles. Paul, welcome to the show. We're really excited to have you, especially because we are going to be talking about industrial policy and the government's plan and what's good in it, what's bad in it, etc. Uh, well, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ben and Nizar. Thank you for having me. Right. Well, let's jump right into it. The news of the past week, I mentioned the spike in coronavirus cases uh, last week. Well, this week has been a much better week. We had a four-day lockdown, as I mentioned earlier, starting Thursday. Today is the last day of it because of the spike. But we haven't really seen these big increases in new case reports since last Sunday. Last Sunday was the last day of big new case reports. There were 36 that day, bringing the total to 845. Now, we're recording this on Sunday before they announced the new numbers for Sunday, so not quite a week. The number as of uh, Saturday was 902 cases. Now, this these fewer cases also came with fewer flights during the interregnum between phase two and phase three of the expat repatriations, which we talked about as well on the program. Phase three started on Thursday, the same day as the lockdown. Um, and, and I'd like to just point out one thing uh, on the spike and on the crackdown and the number of cases we've seen. That spike wasn't due to the easing measures because, it, you know, it, t- it takes at least two weeks or so to really see a spike and the easing measures have not been happening for or had not been happening for that long. And and so certainly a lot of people have turned their focus to these expat flights and the danger that they pose for bringing new cases of Corona, uh, potentially different strains of Corona into the country. And, and that is something that officials are supposedly looking at more as phase three begins. And we have you know, thousands of Lebanese, potentially some infected, coming back into the country, how to control those people once they're here and make sure that they abide by quarantine, etc. The government's going to announce whether the current lockdown is going to end, whether they're going to open up tomorrow or not. Uh, So you guys will know that uh, (laughs) more than me right now, uh, who is speaking to you from the past. Other guidance may also come out of this meeting, of course, as well. Also in the news this week, we we saw a really big push uh, to crack down on illegal smuggling. Oil and wheat are reportedly being smuggled from Lebanon to Syria. And the reason these two things are really important is because they're basically subsidized by Banque du Liban, Lebanon's central bank. So if you want to import wheat or import oil, then BDL will give you a preferred exchange rate, the old 1507.5 exchange rate or somewhere around there. And so this week, with 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 these reports and everything, it, everything really came to a head. And, and we see this every so often, a, a push from the top to sort of crack down on smuggling. The, the Higher Defense Council met on Wednesday and decided to uh, crack down on illegal border crossings. The justice minister asked uh, the state prosecutor to prosecute smugglers. And uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hasbullah, he made a big deal about border smuggling in his speech on Wednesday. All of this stuff happened on Wednesday, I believe. And, and he said, you know, border smuggling is a problem, but Lebanon can't handle it alone. It, it has been a problem since the establishment of Greater Lebanon, referring to September 1st, 1920, almost 100 years ago. 
the creation of Greater Lebanon, which sort of separated it from Greater Syria. And, and basically what he did was he called for closer ties with Syria to combat this. He, he said, Lebanon can't do this alone. You know, this, this is a problem that concerns both the Lebanese and the Syrian governments. So we should, you know, make ties better, reestablish ties uh, with Syria uh, in, in a real substantive way so that we can work on this problem together. As far as the smuggling thing goes, though, this strikes me as one of those things that the government picks up quite often, but never quite delivers on it. Uh, Paul, I, I know you've got a few uh, thoughts on this matter as well. Well, yes, Ben. Actually, smuggling is a very old problem in Lebanon, but it was exacerbated after the uh, Syrian war. Typically, the issue with smuggling used to be the other way around, and it still is, by the way. It's, it's, it's both ways. It goes, at this point right now, you have oil and wheat, which are going towards Syria because they are, as you said, subsidized in Lebanon. But you also have a problem which is even bigger, which is the smuggling uh, of, of, of products through Syria to Lebanon. That's a much bigger issue because this destroys the economy completely. We estimate that we get up to 40% of the local consumption is being smuggled, up to 40%. That's huge. We're talking about FMCG products, obviously. We're not talking about cars. We're not talking about uh, other things like this, but products. Fast-moving consumer goods. Yes, fast-moving consumer goods. So this is a huge, huge number. We heard the, 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 the government saying they're going to crack down. I've been hearing them say this. I mean, every single prime minister ever since I've been in the public sphere uh, been telling us, yes, we're going to crack down on, on uh, smuggling, and then nothing happens. This time around, they seem to say, okay, we're going to send the army to do that. But just to remind everyone, the British army donated to the, Amer to the Lebanese government and to the Lebanese army outposts and watchtowers all over the, the, the border with uh, Syria. And they have been trained and they have scanners and they have uh, drones and they have all of that. I don't get it, not even a second, the issue of we have to coordinate with Syria to, to bring down smuggling. The only way to bring down smuggling is to crack down on them from a point of view of border control and then to crack down on them also on the point of view of selling the products in the market. If they send their teams to the market, they could ask for the supplier's uh, invoice whenever they go into any shop. And if the supplier invoice is not there, then this product is smuggled and they could slap them with a, a heavy fine. The idea being, if you kill the, the demand, then there won't be a need for a supply. How much of this is a technical problem and how much of this is just a lack of sustained political will? As I'm saying, it, it's not a, a sustained, it's not a lack of sustained political will. It's just a lack of political will altogether. There is a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there is a, it, it is a, a predetermined, well-designed system. It's not a matter of, it's not a byproduct of something that happens right now, because I've heard a lot of people saying this is an arbitrage because of the subsidies in Lebanon. So there is an arbitrage opportunity and people will, will take advantage of it. In reality, it has been going for years and years, and this is what creates companies that are completely invisible to the government. They bring in their product, they don't pay VAT, they don't pay tariffs, they don't pay taxes eventually, they are not registered anywhere, and they are destroying the rest of the economy. You cannot compete with a company that has 30% less cost than you, than you do. Meanwhile, cutting the state out of uh, revenues. 
from taxes or duties or whatever. Exactly. Uh, also in the news, a high-ranking BDL official was arrested this week. Uh, Mazen Hamdan, the head of monetary operations at the central bank, uh, was arrested on the orders of financial prosecutor Ali Ibrahim, who accused him of manipulation of the exchange rate of the dollar. I still don't quite understand all of the nuances of the charges mm. here. Basically, the idea was that he was intervening in the currency market at a rate that sort of helped the exchange rate uh, or, or helped the lira devalue. He was selling dollars not only to class A exchange shops, which, you know, part of the circulars of BDL that we've talked about in the past was how BDL would choose certain exchange shops and give them, um, uh, like, and put them in its own circle of dollars. Because now the, the big question is the control of, of, of the hard currency. So basically what I understood is that he was selling dollars to the right people and the wrong people. But basically the piece of news that was all over Lebanese media was not very explanatory at all because all it said was that he was selling at the rate of 3200 3, So the exchange shops had to sell uh, at a higher price. Yeah, but this doesn't mean that they would sell at 4200 Yeah, it's, it's it doesn't really explain. or something, and that's a decent spread in, yeah. in normal times, I guess. Uh, maybe not today. We, we need to put this in context, though, right? Because this comes amid like a, a really big battle basically between Riyad Suleme and Hassan Diab, or d- depending on how you look at it, the, the future movement and the FPM, some people have said, or the future movement and the, those in power in government right now. And and you'll remember a couple of weeks back, there was this big blow up with Diab and Suleme trading accusations. And this seems to me, like we, we don't really know, but it, it definitely seems to be sort of in the same vein. There's this tension between the government and BDL over correct policy. And increasingly, the government is less afraid to use the tools at its disposal to get what they want. Yeah, I think it's also interesting that we haven't heard any political condemnations of of the prosecution. Like BDL has denied the accusations, but we're yet to hear from any political factions because usually anyone with solid decision-making powers or jurisdiction in any public institution that gets prosecuted, you will hear some political voices defending them. So uh, that's interesting. I don't know if Mazen Hamdan is not related to any political uh, force or that they are, you know, taking a step back in this situation. Or he might be, you know, the full guy of someone else. I'm not, I don't know enough about the story, but it's interesting that it hasn't been politicized yet. Speaking of prosecuting civil servants, we, we were talking about uh, the the fuel scandal last week. Well, we have more developments this week. First off, Algeria has denied uh, any responsibility, although the, the president's spokesman has said that uh, the the justice minister has been asked to open investigation. But here in Lebanon, domestically, also, uh, we have the judiciary summoning, I, I guess, the, the head of oil installations here in Lebanon, a, a man by the name of Sarkis Hales, and he is not complying. Marada leader Sleman Frangie, uh, the, the former minister, the former MP, the head of the Marada party, he came out on Monday and just gave a very fiery uh, speech said that Halais would not turn himself into the current judiciary, which he called politicized and biased in favor of Gibran Basile. So Frangie is basically saying no to this uh, entire process, which he thinks is just a something that uh, it is sort of trumped up against uh, one of his guys who is in uh, the ministry. Uh, and, and of course, mm-hmm. you have uh, the larger thing that's going on here as well, which is that both Basile and Frangie are looking to become president. Both of them want to become president in 2022 when Aoun's term ends. 
And, and these guys, they are neighbors basically up in the north. Basile's base is in Batrun, which is, you know, just southwest of Zagarta, which is the, the home, uh, the, the ancestral home of Suleiman Frangie. Uh, and, and both these guys, I mean, we, we've talked about this before on the program, right, Nizar? Uh, they're, yeah. they're both going uh, for the presidency. And so their relations have been just, have been strained really, really far. And especially under the current circumstances and the current pressures, their relationship has become, uh, I think, even worse than before, if that's possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it can't get any more escalated than this. And it's and Aoun is still there. Like, you hear Suleiman Frangie in the press conference just explicitly and directly talking about the presidential race and talking about himself versus Jubran Basile. So it, it's things are usually more subtle in, in Lebanese politics, but there's this thing where Frangie needs to always bring himself up. Uh, he needs to reassure his relevance in the political sphere. Uh, he can't be a marginal figure and be president at this time of Lebanon's history because this is not the time of marginal presidents. This is the time of, you know, more politically involved presidents. And he's someone who is very close to the Syrian regime historically. Uh, we've talked about the Frangie family at many instances during this podcast. But what's definitely true is that, you know, he's been one of the most loyal people to the Assad family. So this helps him a lot because as we talked, you know, after the end of uh, the elections, uh, the Syrian regime has a lot of influence now on, on the Lebanese parliament, on, on basically on government in Lebanon in general. But basically in terms of representation in parliament, there's a very big uh, portion of uh, MPs who, are, who come from backgrounds that are sympathetic or, you know, close or allies with the, allied with the re- Syrian regime. So it's now about who basically the Syrian regime and other forces, obviously, uh, like Hezbollah and, and Berri, etc., but who they agree on to be the next president. And Frangi is hoping that because Basile is widely disliked uh, by most political forces, as well as by most people, to be clear, that he would have the upper hand in that. We'll see about that. Yeah, but that's his main bet, I think. Everybody else is talking about the U.S. presidential election this year. We're talking about the Lebanese presidential election two years from now. Yeah. Strap in. We're going to have a lot more to say about this over the next couple of years. Uh, very quickly, uh, the lira has actually gone up against the dollar in the past couple of days. The rate right now is 36.50 to 37.50 uh, lira to the dollar, according to lirarate.com. However, I, I I have a lot of questions about this. I don't know if it's possible to buy dollars at this rate. I, I've definitely heard of instances where people couldn't even buy dollars for like 42.50. So, you know, unless you're actually able to both buy and sell dollars around this rate, then it's not the real rate, right? Uh, and so I think we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to see whether this is just like sort of a, a blip, whether this is some sort of cash grab on someone's part, or whether this actually is uh, the lira sort of settling down against the dollar a little bit. Also this week, the other big item that we have to talk about quickly is the IMF is in town. The government began to hold their negotiations with an IMF uh, delegation this week. Finance Minister Ghaziwazni said that Lebanon is ready to float the lira, but only after receiving external support. They're requesting about $9 billion from the IMF, uh, he said. And once we start receiving that, then Lebanon is ready to move to first off a period of a flexible exchange rate before a full flotation, uh, is, is what he said. He also said that the number of banks is likely to be cut in half at, at, as the banking sector consolidates and, and reforms itself. And he also said that parliament is finally going to pass a capital controls bill. 
uh, which I don't know. I did, it, it's one of those things that I've I've heard this before, and we'll see if it actually happens this time. But promises don't really count for too much here. Yeah, I mean the capital controls bill, which you know just suddenly disappeared from the government's uh, uh, agenda after Nabihberi announced that it's dead, and you know other things related to restructuring the banking sector and making it much smaller or cutting it in half are parts of the government plan, and they are basically parts that cannot be, they are not like optional things. They are one of the main, some of the main pillars of the plan, without which, you know, it wouldn't work. And uh, given this plan today, and we talked about the plan a lot in in the episode where we analyzed it, but uh, one of the things we said about it is that, you know, it's very heavy on financial issues and, and specific sectors or specific matters. They are very well written, very well elaborated but not so much on other things, right? And when we talked about how it deals with the sectors and uh, the issue of economic development and what kind of economic development we want in in the various sectors, it's very light. Basically, all the sectors are put in an annex. And, you know, there is on the industrial sector, for example, which is the main topic for this episode, there's only about, you know, 300 words uh, of of material. It's basically nothing, just big headlines uh, without any details whatsoever. So, Paul, you're here with us to discuss the industrial sector in Lebanon and uh, in light of this government plan. Do you, you know, is this was this also your feeling? We will talk about the plan in, in five or ten minutes, but was this also your feeling that, you know, it was quite marginalized uh, in this whole uh, recovery plan? I think that was ex- extremely underwhelming. It, it showed that uh, this is not the target of the plan. As, as I have uh, said it before multiple times already, this is a bankruptcy proceeding. It's not a recovery plan. It has nothing to do with an economic vision. As you pointed out, uh, they're putting you know 300 words on industrial sector that supposedly should have been their main target or their main pillar for going forward. At least that's what they are saying. And you put 300 words in the annex about it in a 55-page uh, document. It, I mean, just if you look at the form, you, you understand that this is, it is not a plan. It was just, and, and you can see as well that the first section of the plan is, has been written by someone and the second section, which is the economic uh, part, has been written by a completely different group. Mm-hmm. It's not the same yeah. quality of, of, uh, of writing. It's not the same way you, you propose things. And it shows it's two different groups. And it's uh, really underwhelming, especially that there is actually a, a, a plan, an a industrial plan, in the Ministry of Industry that is very much along the lines of what we as an association have proposed and was completely sidelined for these 300 words. Mm. Uh, We'll talk about that in a second. But first of all, let's start from the big picture, right? Uh, The industrial sector in Lebanon is known to be, uh, I mean, it's always talked about as if it has potential and it's uh, true in my opinion as well as it is in yours. But it's been doing really bad uh, over the last, say, at least 25, 30 years after the civil war, in the times of peace after the civil war, it hasn't prospered like other sectors. And the uh, the succeeding governments have been blamed for, you know, their policies or their lack of policies thereof, of um, basically uh, approaching the industrial sector or in, uh, envisioning development of the industrial sector. Can you give us like a big picture of, of how the industrial sector has been doing and why we reached the point where, you know, it has deteriorated and became a smaller size relative to the size of the economy? Well, yes, of course. If we go back a bit to the mid-1990s, the industrial sector was relatively bigger and in much better shape. In 2000, the, 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 the tariffs, the main tariffs were brought down from 40% to an abysmal uh, 5% on average. 
And uh, this typically decimated overnight a big part of the industrial base because obviously this is an industrial base that was just going out of a civil war and it was not ready for international competition. Uh, we were supposed to have programs in place by the, by the EU to be able to uh, help us smooth our way into a better manufacturing base to be able to eventually export to the EU. That obviously never materialized. We had some spotty uh, programs here and there, but this wasn't a, anything with an economic vision. Not to go too deep into the history of things, but typically in the last, let's say, if you go back only a couple of years backwards, so that would be around 2014, 13, 14, we were still exporting $4.7 billion a year. Then the, 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 uh, the uh, Syrian roads were closed, so everything exporting through Syria was shut down, and we lost overnight around 1.5 to 1.8 billion of exports which are extremely important, especially if we see in the backdrop of what's happening right now and the lack of the uh, hard currency in the country. So typically across, I mean, all these years, since 2000 till today, no economic vision whatsoever, no plans for the industrial sector, no bold solutions, no just straddling along. And also never, the, 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 the big issue as well is that when you have the Ministry of Industry and the Ministry of Economy being completely separate one from the other, the Ministry of Economy does the uh, trade deals, so they negotiate the trade deals. And if you look at every single trade deal that we've done with any country in the world, all of them were losing, all of them, literally. Unless you have the Ministry of Industry, manufacturing associations like ours, on the table negotiating, because we know what is needed in the country. We know what could damage us and what, on the other hand, could provide us with an opportunity to export. So every single country we, we signed a deal with actually ends up being abusing this, this, uh, this uh, system. Even the Taysir al-Arabi, which is the uh, free trade agreement with, uh, with the Arab countries, for those countries that we are interested in exporting to, like the, uh, the Maghrib Arabi, which is Morocco, Tunis, Algeria. They simply disregard the, the deal. They signed it, but they disregard it. And we're always in a bad position in negotiation. So this is pretty much where we're at right now. At this point, uh, at least in 2019, or just before the, the, uh, the revolution, uh, we were around 13% of GDP. And that's around, uh, we were around 10 billion of, of, uh, of output. Uh, a year, 160,000 employees, and 2.7 billion of exports. So this is pretty much it in a nutshell where we're at right now. My question would be now, in this crisis, what uh, impact are you seeing on the manufacturing sector? Because some people say that, you know, uh, compared to other sectors, it uh, doesn't do as bad during this time, uh, except for manufacturing that heavily depends on on imported raw materials. What is your assessment of kind of the impact of the money, of the crisis right now, the economic crisis in Lebanon and the lockdown resulting from the pandemic on the industrial sector? As you pointed out, normally the manufacturing sector should not be as affected by the by the currency issue and the hard currency issue because if you look at the whole sector, on average you need around 30 to 35% of your cost in raw material, which means that if you compare it with a finished product, you're reducing your hard currency bill by at least three-folds. Now, on the other hand, the hard currency is being hard to find, actually, in the market. And while we talked to the government and we got a, uh, a approval, or let's say a pledge from them that they were going to inject $300 million 
as a bridge uh, loan to the uh, to the manufacturing sector in hard currency. So typically, they would allow us to use our own dollars, our dollars in that case, in the uh, in the bank to be able to procure some raw material. This never materialized. Then we went to 100 million. So they went down from 300 million to 100 million. And at this point, uh, we're working uh, to see how we can actually uh, manage to get the 100 million to be able to give this push for the industrial sector. So the main issue is still, yes, raw material, uh, getting raw material. Some industrial sectors are actually more affected by other than others. Those, as you pointed out, that have a higher level of raw material uh, usage. But in general, again, we're missing an opportunity at this point because if we go heavily by helping heavily the manufacturing sector we will reduce our our import bill quite substantially yeah we will be talking about like the problems with with or the lack of uh, enthusiasm about the sector in the plan in a second but like as you're saying it's really if 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 we look at the lebanese economy from um like if we zoom out we see that you know from all sectors that have been funding the lebanese economy and and local consumption bringing in the dollars into the economy uh, very few are are solid enough to be sustained during crisis, right? Most of them are volatile. Uh, remittances, uh, foreign investments, these things are really uh, volatile, especially deposits and banking sector. And when you have a confidence crisis, then basically you can you won't get any of that. So the, one of the few sectors that can save you in this situation is either the industry or agriculture because you're exporting things consistently and bringing back dollars to the economy. So really, if... if uh, if you go back to any of our early episodes about the problems of the Lebanese economy before this whole explosion happened and the whole deterioration of the lira, we were always saying the big problem is the problem of the shortage of dollars. And you can't resolve the shortage of dollars on the long term without empowering the sectors that export, that can help you export things. Let's, I think, get into the government plan uh, in a bit more detail. Can you tell us, Paul, why you were saying that it doesn't meet the requirements. It doesn't take the industrial sector uh, seriously. And if anyone is um, reviewing the plan, it's one of the annexes. So you have to scroll down to the end of it and find it, you know, uh, along with agriculture and other industries, uh, sectors uh, down there. It's 42 and 43 on the long document. Well, yeah, it's 42 and uh, just one part of 43, (laughs) not even two pages. (laughs) Exactly. What I would like to say about the the government plan, and I I think it's important to look at it as a whole, because there is no such a thing as a plan that is, uh, you know, it it tackles a certain problem or certain part of the economy, and we cannot take it piecemeal. This has to be an overarching approach uh, that that gives a new vision for the country, uh, creates a a, 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 a something to look up to or to look uh, to look up for. I mean, this is extremely important. If you are if you, if you look at the first part of the document, you'll see that they are expecting GDP to reach 34 billion in 2024. It's like we'll be back at 55 billion in, in 40 years or so. And it, in my opinion, it's totally ridiculous. We cannot just put, you know, under conservative or let's say simply ridiculous growth rate targets, especially when we say that the country will devaluate or will, 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 will de facto have a reduced GDP up to 28 billion. So you're starting from rock bottom. You cannot have, you know, a 1%, 1.5% growth uh, targets as if you were the United States or Europe. You should be targeting 12, 13, 14% with bold programs to jumpstart the economy. You want a V-shaped recovery. You cannot have, you know, a, pro- a protracted long uh, recovery. 
this will be unsustainable. Neither for the, I mean, socially it will be unsustainable. And all the story about the nets and social nets are just, they will not be enough. So just to start from there, you, you, you see that it's as if the, the, the whole plan is a bankruptcy proceeding. It's like, okay, we have the losses. This is how we're going to distribute the losses. This is how we're going to make the balance sheet, uh, you know, balanced again uh, somehow. And what would that do to the economy? It probably will destroy the economy, but uh, we have nothing else to do with it. We, we are, we're forced to do that. And I'm totally against it, and I think it's completely wrong. And I think that we should have had 55 pages of economic uh, solutions and an economic recovery plan, and only maybe two or three pages <laughs> discussing the financial issues. Because in reality, they are basing their financial restructuring on a picture of what's going on today. And they're not looking at it in the mindset of a, an economic recovery. I'm not saying, you know, be very rosy in the way you're approaching things or even be delusional about it. But if we're not looking at the last decade or even at the last 20 years coming uh, forward, we need to have a proper plan, a proper vision that will literally give this, this, this feeling of, of actually being accepting the losses that are currently now and accepting the probably the hardship that are going to come in the next year or two because you know you're, there is going to be a recovery at the end. But if you're saying from now that you need five years to recover just you know 3-4% of your GDP, then what you're going to end up with is simply a big explosion on the social level. So that's, that's just as a, as, a, as a total overview. But if I look at the industrial sector, I mean, what, they're, what, they, what they've presented in the, in the plan, first of all, they, they looked at, uh, you know, all the, industri- all the sectors, like the industrial sector, the agriculture sector, and they're practically copy-pasted one to the other. And they also have a lot of errors in it. They talk about the availability of highly skilled labor. That's not true. That's one of the issues that we're trying to, to fix. They're talking about the raw material financing. And they, they came across the, the 750 million uh, support of raw material, just so that everyone understand. This is the Cedar Oxygen Fund, and this has nothing to do with the government. This is a private, a private initiative done by, a, by wonderful people, uh, Alexandre Harouz, Jean Salome. Uh, they are leading this initiative in, in Luxembourg, and they've given of their time. They're part of the LIFE, uh, which is the group of financial executives in the world, the Venice financial executives in the world. And this is a private, completely private initiative to try and help the raw material issue in Lebanon. And seeing the government use that in their plan as if it was theirs is just incredible. We've so basically, heard- the government doesn't have a lot to say about its own kind of investment in the sector and support for the sector. So it's borrowing from initiatives happening by private uh, actors. Yes, and it's it's incredible because they didn't even talk to them about it. I know uh, firsthand that uh, they, they, they heard about it on the news, that they're saying they're going to give support for raw material and so forth. Anyways, we can see it's just a ragtag of a of, uh, of couple of things, you know, that they've written, uh, providing a reduction in SF fees, uh, uh, subsidized loan. I, I don't know from where they're going to get the money for subsidized loans. If you plug that into the initial financial plan, you see that it doesn't exist. So they say they're going to give subsidized loan, but they don't allocate the, the funds in it inside the financial plan. So typically, you, you, it's, it's as if they're, they're writing this annex just to say, you know what, this is also an economic plan, when in reality, it's none of that. It's just a restructuring plan that's typically saying, you know what, the banks were bad, the BDL was bad, they used up all the money, we're going to make them pay for that, and that's about it. And once we do, we do that, then we'll have a clean slate and we'll start over again. It's 
completely wrong. And I think that it is on an economic level, it's underwhelming. On a financial level, it's going to destroy the economy and they have to redo it again, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the action plan here and 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 these uh, the subsidized loans and guarantees and everything like that's sort of the the big fist like that. That's the big punch here. Uh, and, and it isn't even we have got lots of questions about where that money is even going to come from. But then the other things on the list, like you were you were talking about, like, you know, these tax breaks and uh, developing industrial zones establish a proudly made in Lebanon brand and and all of this stuff, increasing standards. All of these other things are are things that have been proposed in the past, right? Yes, obviously. And, and but the problem is, let, let's take them one at a time. If you talk about the made in Lebanon brand as an association, that's what we're doing. That's not the government's job. They're not doing it. They never did it, and that's what we're doing as an association. And we but, already have that. I mean, I see made in Lebanon on products. Yeah, what you see on products at this point is just made in Lebanon, which is uh, required by law. But what you're trying to achieve is pretty much what, what the Swiss have done, what the Italian have done, French have done as well. The, the, the idea of having this made in Lebanon becoming a quality label and not just a, a label that's telling you from where the product comes from. And this is important. And this is it will need investments over a long period of time, it will need enforcing quality standards across sectors because, yes, in Lebanon, we have some very, very, very good manufacturers, but we also have some bad ones. And the issue is that the government doesn't enforce quality. And so when it does not enforce quality, if one apple is rotten and you have the whole box, it's going to go bad. Right. So so if so all these things have been before, why haven't they happened? Because... Typically, if you look at all of these things, it requires, again, an economic vision a, and a plan, a long-term plan, where you have consecutive uh, ministers who come in and don't scrap this plan and start over, which is exactly what happens in Lebanon. I've seen already three ministers I've been, well, since I've been on the board of directors of the association, and every new minister comes in, <clears throat> gets his team in, scraps the old plan, look at what's already there picks something from it that he feels is going to be, I mean, the most, let's say, uh, uh, that will show the, the, the most how much he wants to, to get something done and go for it. And and obviously, if you run a company like this, the company goes bankrupt in, in, in a year or two. And this is exactly what happened with the with the industrial sector right here. I know that the ministry is doing a lot of a lot of work. The the the, the director of uh, the general director of the ministry is, is doing great work. Uh, all the employees are trying but this needs something much bigger. This needs literally a vision. Someone coming in and saying, you know what? I want to produce electric cars in Lebanon. How am I going to do that? I need to create a, a uh, you know, uh, industrial zones. Perfect. What have we done till now? And why, is it, why was it wrong? They've proposed industrial zones in so remote areas. I mean, the areas are so remote that it's going to be impossible with the infrastructure of Lebanon for any industrialist to relocate there. It'd be impossible. If I want to relocate my manufacturing facility to any of those proposed industrial zones, I'll have to drive every day two and a half hours to reach them. And it's, it's simply unfeasible. So instead of that, we should have a clear approach by saying, if you want to do, the, the let's say, uh, industrial machinery, we want to build industrial machinery in the country, we want to build electric cars in the country, what do we do? Where do we create our, our industrial zone? What kind of facilities are we going to, to, to have to invest in to attract this kind of talent? Not only financial. The issue is not only financial. It's also ease of use, uh, uh, what kind of, uh, let's say, close uh, proximity to ports, 
proximity to living quarters and so forth. So when you start thinking this way and you say, okay, I need an agro-food industrial zone specialized. So what do I need to make it happen? I'll need to invest in a laboratory and plant it there. I need to invest maybe in some some, uh, uh, technical schools and plant it there. And then I will be able to see some clusters being created and the, the manufacturing sector will start becoming clusterized in a way that creates efficiencies and creates synergies. So this is what's required, not just lip service about, you know, we're going to increase the brand of uh, Made in Lebanon, the, the, the quality quality label, or we're just going to uh, invest in, in, in some uh, industrial sector. You know, all of this just without details, without a proper vision, what kind of industrial sector we expect in Lebanon? Do we want to produce steel? Do we want to produce uh, plastics? Do we want to produce textiles? What is it exactly that we feel is good for the country and would do well also to compete with other countries? We have to look at what our diaspora needs. We have a huge diaspora of around 14 to 15 million. I mean, this is a market in of itself. Did we look at what are they buying? What they are they importing uh, when they are living in Nigeria, when they're living in France, when they're living in the US? What are they consuming? How can we reach them? So this is the kind of approach. You get all of this information, you put them in a plan, and then you can proceed. Speaking of the role of the industrial sector and its development, I would uh, I would actually bring up this point that I hear a lot. A lot of people always say um, Lebanon doesn't have the capacity to be industrial power, so we shouldn't waste time there, or we shouldn't have illusions that we will be competing with other countries. It's definitely this perspective definitely lacks nuance because a lot of of industrial development now is about specialization and development of the specific industries that you have competitive advantage in and that you know you can um, learn from other close industries in order to develop. So it's more about specialization and knowing exactly what industries you want rather than saying, I want to be an industrial power in general. And arguably, it's been like that uh, throughout history. And uh, there have been very few cases where, you know, one country would be, except for China, probably one country would be very good or the best at producing so many things. Right. So what is your perspective on that? What kind of vision or industrial potential do you see for Lebanon? Because you've been talking about what's what. Uh, we need instead of this plan like what kind of policies we need so my first question is what role you see or what potential you see for lebanon industrially and the second question is isn't it all about uh, the allocation of funds like if we get the best minister of industry that we can think of like the best guy with the best vision the best guy or woman of course with the best vision who will come and you know um, do an upheaval in the ministry and everything can they do anything without a very serious change of paradigm in terms of budget allocations well, first of all, I think that one of the issues with the perception of Lebanon not being able to compete is the distortion created by the PEG. When the PEG was actually in, uh, created, gradually it created this false, uh, let's say, false purchase power in Lebanon uh, that made manufacturing in the country completely uncompetitive because you could import anything and that would not be affected by the by the currency cost. And therefore, as it's it would be as if you are fighting or you are competing without the the actual structure, economic structure of the country affecting it. Let me give you a simple example. If I want to produce the glass bottles, producing them in Lebanon will be more expensive than producing them anywhere else. Because, I mean, not now, but usually, because now it's subsidized, the energy is subsidized, but let's say, and it won't stay that way, but let's say in normal cases, we, our energy cost is relatively high. So it doesn't make too much sense to produce them 
if we're competing just like that, straight from the point and saying, okay, I want to produce in Lebanon or I want to produce in, uh, in Egypt, uh, for example. But then you bring in the currency and you say that, oh, wait a second, $200 million worth of glass bottles that are being imported every year to Lebanon. If you're producing them in-house in Lebanon, then you're reducing your import bill by $150 million. Then it changes everything. So the point is, and it will affect, obviously, the currency. So when you float the currency, uh, these questions of, of whether we build a manufacturing plant for glass bottles in the country or not is not anymore just a matter of producing the dollar cost, a certain dollar cost. What the PEG did is that it distorted completely this reality. So we had two major glass bottles manufacturing facilities in Lebanon. One was bombed in 2006. The other one closed shop, uh, I think, uh, a year ago or so. And, and investing in a new one, unless you are sure that you're going to be protected, is, is a big deal. It's $50, $60 million to start with for a small plant, and then you go all the way to $100 million to do that. But the point is, not everything should be looked at from the point of view of just the exact cost comparing it to comp competing with a company in China or in Bangladesh. On the other hand, we have a lot of things that we can compete on. First of all, we should be thinking about how to provide nearshoring capability to Europe. And, and this is a very important concept. Uh, throughout the 2000s, uh, all the way till now, the main, the main drive was to outsource you know, outsource to, to India, outsource to China, outsource to Bangladesh, outsource to Myanmar, and so forth. Today, the approach is being changed. It's being changed to something called nearshoring. Nearshoring being the proximity and the speed to actually provide products on time, on the shelves, means that you don't need to buy products too early and to stock them up too early. And Lebanon is very well poised in that scheme because what you can do is that you can produce multiple items, short runs, you don't need to produce huge quantities, provide them by boat to Europe. It should take you seven, seven, six to seven days uh, by boat to get to Europe. So you can get products on the shelves extremely fast. Compare that with China, and you have a cycle of around between eight and 12 months. So we could be looking at cycles of a month to month in Lebanon compared to 12 months in China. And the Europeans will be more than happy to pay premium for that because they would reduce their cost of stocking and warehousing, and they'll be much more reactive on the market. So if you want to look at this, I'll give you a couple of examples that are really interesting. The machine building uh, capability, people don't know that, but there are companies in Lebanon that are producing uh, warehousing robots for uh, BMW. You have companies producing uh, production lines for PNG, Procter & Gamble. You can also produce high-end products, you can also produce high-added value products. And we're really well poised for that because we have a good white-collar workforce. We need to work on our blue-collar one, that's for sure, but our white-collar is really good. So we can actually produce multiple items, multiple products, uh, switch from one to the other, which is a big hassle when it comes to big producers in China or in Egypt. Okay, so you're you're talking about things that we can export. Earlier, though, you were you were talking about industry itself, and it it sounded to me like you were saying that not only do we need to like support uh, local industry and specific industries where we have a competitive advantage, whether that be through tax breaks or or loans or or whatever or guarantees, but also do we need uh, higher tariffs? Do we need more protection? Then, in my opinion, yes, we need targeted uh, tariffs, and 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 that's very important. Some countries, 
actually dump their products. We had in the association, we, we, we fought our way to establishing, I think, 19 or 20 uh, different sectors, which we identified as being dumped uh, in the country. And we got, after wrangling for probably three years, we got uh, a tariff uh, protection for those. Uh, they haven't been yet uh, put in place because of all the crisis and everything. But the point is, we identified that 20 major sectors were being dumped in Lebanon. So you had an issue like, for, for instance, uh, Persil, which is Henkel. Well, we have a production facility for Henkel in Lebanon. And in the same time, products were being dumped from Henkel Turkey into Henkel Lebanon. And that's the same company. So uh, whenever Turkey, let's say, had an issue with their own currency and they need to export more, they'll get the government would, would come in and subsidize their exports. And so they'll become so cheap and they will be dumped in Lebanon. So we needed to make sure that we create anti-dumping laws. Tariffs, per se, are important. They are important because you need to make sure that every company is fighting on the same level. A company in Lebanon cannot fight with a company that's subsidized in Saudi Arabia. It cannot compete with a company that's heavily subsidized in Iran. It cannot compete with a company subsidized in Turkey. So we need to make sure that all the countries that subsidize their, uh, their production, uh, we need to, be, to put tariffs there. I'm not saying just slap tariffs across the board without being targeted. targeted. It should be targeted uh, cases. We need to make sure that it only targets the section that uh, puts all the competition on fair grounds. But in the same time, it's important just to make sure that people will keep investing in the industrial sector. I also propose something called the potential tariff increase, which is instead of adding the tariffs right now, you could say, okay, if you invest, if someone comes in and invests in this particular sector, we'll protect him with, let's say, 10% tariffs or 15% tariffs. And then there is another issue with the tariff code. I'm not sure that we have the time to discuss it now, but there is a big, big issue with the tariff code right now. The code itself, not the, not just the, the, the levels or the, tariff, uh, the tariffs themselves, but the code. The customs code is, is being used and abused, whereby the majority of the imports that are coming in are coming in under some part of the tariff code, which is called others. So in every different sector, they, they import them under others. And so you don't even know what's being imported and they're without any customs whatsoever. Yeah, got you. And in your opinion, does the government, does the uh, ministry, I guess the ministries of economy and industry, do they have the capacity to tackle all of these problems, whether that's you know tracking which states are funding or, or subsidizing certain industries or certain companies, and just the ability to come up with an overall plan for targeted tariffs and, uh, and increasing vigilance there. Does the government have the capacity to do that? Well, we've been working with them. The, the question is not the capacity, it's the will. Because uh, try to get them information from the customs department. It's horrendous. You just can't do that. You have to go through the president of the, the, of the country to do that. And it's unacceptable. The reality is they know that the tariff code is wrong. And they know it should be fixed. And it, no, it doesn't need to be too complicated to fix it because there are the schemes are in place, the laws are in place. You can just use them and it will work. The, the issue was, until now at least, it was on purpose, done on purpose. And, and that's a very big issue. The idea was simply that, uh, you know, there are people getting taken advantage of it and, and they're politically related. And so we're not going to touch them. If they want to actually do it, then we as an association have tried to help and we will keep trying to help and we will help. But the point is, it can be done. Yes, it can be done. Definitely can be done. I don't like to talk about subsidizing because it's something that I hate and I don't think it's 
we should ever propose subsidizing anything. What I propose, on the other hand, when it comes to what the government should do, it should propose, it should create schemes to make it more interesting for foreign direct investments to come in, uh, not subsidizing any sector whatsoever. If you want to protect the sector, you can increase the tariffs a bit, but don't subsidize the sector because this automatically creates arbitrage op uh, opportunities and it will be corrupt. On the other hand, you make sure that you, you, you protect the sectors that need protecting. Some of those are connected to, let's say, uh, the, the food safety or, or, or environmental safety. So you don't need to make too much money on everything, but sometimes you need it in the, in the sector, in the, let's say, in the economy itself. And because you need an ecosystem, something very important is that when you want the companies to export, there are no companies in the world, no manufacturing sector in the world that's being built from the ground up for export. You create the, 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 the companies or you create the manufacturing companies and you first sell in the local market and then you're, you're good enough or you have in critical mass, critical size to be able to start exporting because you want to export at an acceptable cost and to do that, you need to have critical mass. This is only feasible if you do it. First, you sell the local market, and then you, you go out and sell and you export. So this is why you need to, to, to make sure your, your companies are not dumped on, because one year of dumping will simply destroy the company. It's clear from what you're saying that there's so much to discuss about trade policies when it comes to its impact on the industrial sector, because it seems to be like one of the most important things you can do, you know, develop infrastructure and then uh, and and have the sound trade policies for it but we can't uh, unfortunately go into much more detail we have to wrap up this episode thank you so much paul for making it to this episode and for all the insights you've been providing we will probably have sometimes in the future another episode about the industrial sector but i think this gave a solid overview for uh, for for listeners so thank you so much for coming thank you so much for having me i mean it was a pleasure and uh, thank you for this really nice podcast and that's it for us this week uh we'll be back next week with another episode until then i'm benjamin red i'm nizar hassan and i am paula binasser and this has been the lebanese politics podcast Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.